Good evening, listeners. It's October 28th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lily Paget-Cobb. And I'm Lori Lutz. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Sam Newton, a master's candidate from the Environmental Arts and Humanities program in the College of Liberal Arts. She is also pursuing a minor in risk and uncertainty in marine science in the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. Hi, Sam. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. As part of your research, you're examining our connection to the ocean by asking a set of questions that drive at understanding how we know what we know about the ocean and how we assign value to that knowledge, how we have assigned value to that knowledge. Can you share about the questions you're asking and how you have been answering those questions as part of your research? Sure. So... um, I think it mostly started as me looking at the role of science and technology and how we know nature, um, specifically within the context of marine settings, and then um, how that knowledge has over time affected how we govern nature, so how we do environmental decision making, things like natural resource management um, at state levels, local levels, and also in legislation. Um, And I look at that through a historical lens, um, but also through some methods through science and technology studies. So I'm also looking at critical theory and looking at the types of discourse that exist about science and technology studies that people have done. And I also do a little bit of work looking at environmental ethics and how those have come into play over time uh, within environmental decision-making and thinking. So how do you go about studying Uh, what you're studying. So you are coming from a humanities perspective. And so how do you integrate these uh, two really, on the surface of it, different fields of humanities and science? And how are you, I guess, looking at that relationship? Yeah, so I think humanities um, is poised in a nice place to look at um, the relationships that we have between sort of... uh, the natural sciences and the social sciences, how people interact with knowledge. Um, When you think about it, when I think of what my day looks like, like a work day when I'm doing research, I might spend time in the archive. I've been in the archive here at OSU looking at Sea Grant archives, looking at archives for specific oceanographers. People like Bill Piercy has his own archive. I also... um, spend time looking at digital archives. So I might be looking at many, many, many uh, fisheries management plans over the years, looking at how they've changed, looking at who's been involved, looking at the type of language that they use. 
Um, I also do oral history. So I work with people and I sit down and I let them tell their story. And so, um, for example, for this research, I've done uh, two of those with oceanographers, um, Waldo Wakefield, who's with NOAA, but also out at Hatfield, and Lorenzo Cianelli, who's here at uh, in the College of Ocean and Atmospheric Seos, <laughs> there's Earth in there somewhere too. I don't know, um, <laughs> and I don't ask them a lot of questions. I just let them tell their story of how they came into the work, um, and then I look at the role of technology and how they've gone in knowing nature and sort of the different choices that they've made, and then I correlate that with discourse and literature that exists about environmental decision making, environmental ethics, and how these interact. So. Your master's thesis is split up into a few different parts, right? Yeah. So um, right now my master's is in three parts, and I'm still working through it. I defend soon, um, but I'm still working through organizing the information. And I'm going at these, at the topics that I was just talking about, how, you, how we know nature, what we do with that knowledge, how it affects environmental decision making. And I'm going at it through a somewhat new novel approach that's based on this guy. His name's Bruno Latour, he's got some crazy theories. Um, he has one theory of like how you study how things are associated, and so one of my chapters is really looking at that methodology that I'm using to look at these topics, so I'm sort of, um, using his ideas as a framework. And so I'm writing about that in one of the chapters. And all of the work that I've done so far is interdisciplinary. So one chapter is based on a project I did with uh, an uh, ocean ecologist and a fluid mechanics engineer. And another chapter is based on a project I did with a fisheries oceanographer and a computer scientist. So um, I gained a lot of insights about interdisciplinarity and why that's important and why that's part of this method that sort of like builds into this framework of a new way of how to study relationships in the world. And so the other two chapters are me applying those methods. So I've got one chapter where I'm applying those looking at pteropods, which are a tiny pelagic sea snail, and I'm, a, I'm applying this idea that I have, maybe we should look at the world this way, and I'm doing it with pteropods. And then the other project was with groundfish, and so I'm saying I'm going to look at groundfish using this lens as well. So two chapters of application and one of sort of meta-analysis and theory. Okay. So looking at this this history of science and technology and how we interact with nature. Have you come across any insights or anything that is particularly particularly striking about the role of science and technology in this process of how we interact with nature? Yeah, I find what I have found most striking, and other people have written about this as well, but for myself, seeing it on my own, just that um, there has been sort of an idea of either we're moving technology or technology is moving us. Um, forward, backward, just there's an influence like we're influencing it or is it influencing us and I think as you look back you'll see that the choices we make and the kinds of technology that we not only use but that we choose to invest in to develop um, really have significant influence over the kinds of things that we can know or that we have known 
the kinds of things that we have been able to study and the kinds of questions we've been able to ask, and also that those that those technological choices are really connected to the types of data that we've been able to use. Um, so I think that that is the most striking thing that I found. Just there's this influence and this non-human influence that has a really big impact on how we know the ocean. And looking at your thesis, you're focusing on, you mentioned the pteropods and Another uh, chapter of your thesis was involved the Pacific groundfish. And so can you talk about the groundfish chapter a little bit and um, I guess this decision-making framework of how uh, scientific data is generated and prioritized? Sure. So uh, one of the reasons I enjoy the two chapters, pteropods versus groundfish, is because the groundfish fishery is uh, one of the biggest fisheries in the world. It's really economically important to Oregon. Um, everybody eats groundfish. Maybe you don't know that you're eating groundfish, but you probably are. There's 90 species, around 90 species within the groundfish fishery. And pteropods don't necessarily have that type of value in our society. Uh, they've been used in as indicator species, but maybe they're not as important as the groundfish are. They're really important. And so I'm able to uh, compare and contrast those two like different species. And with groundfish, um, we've been fishing them since the early 1900s and measuring their populations since just maybe the 1950s. So it took us a while before we were actually really interested in measuring their stocks. Um, and the types of data that we can get determine the types of decisions that we can make around these fish. And the types of data that we can get are directly related to the types of technology and science that we have. And um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, around in there, um, there was a huge groundfish fishery collapse, which then was a federal disaster. And around that time, we really um, rearranged how we were thinking about the groundfish fishery and how we were to manage the groundfish fishery. And I also, one of those striking things that you find, um, which, you know, maybe it's obvious or, and lots of people have talked about it, but for me to see it is that we do a lot of this inquiry retroactively. So we don't necessarily think about the future, although now the, you know, that was the history of the fishery. That's what's been happening is that you sort of think about things retroactively. You think, oh, well, now we need this data that we didn't really have before. And so then you start collecting that data and it's hard to predict. You know, we live in this uncertain world. And there's a lot of risk and it's hard to predict what data you're going to need. But then you have to prioritize what data do you get? What data do you use? And so um, there's just a complex interaction there. Yeah. So it seems like the priorities for which research gets funded is it's impacted by these crises that arise. But then when you collect the data that um, is a result of following the crisis, it's just a snapshot and it's not really a holistic view of maybe, you know, the what was happening before the crisis. Yeah, so. and you know, there's limited funding and people and resources, and so you have to prioritize, and I understand that. Um, but when I look back at what's happened, 
Um, I'm just sort of looking at what I see and that's what I see. Yeah. So you're also focusing on the ocean specifically. And during our pre-interview, you spoke of this connection with the forest that we don't have with the ocean. And can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Um, When I first started grad school, I came in knowing that I wanted to study the ocean because I am from coastal Texas and I have a strong relationship with the ocean. And um, my background isn't really in environment, like, I did environmental work for a nonprofit, but it's not in an academic environmental work. So there were a lot of environmental theories that I didn't know, theories about environmental ethics and worldviews and values and, you know, philosophy and just all this stuff about environmentalism, mostly in the U.S., but globally, that I just didn't know that discourse. Um, and so I came in and that's sort of the first thing you start learning. You get these foundations of like, what is environmentalism? What are the environmental humanities? And I noticed that it was mostly all terrestrial. And when you talk to people about environmentalism, they're going to think, you know, John Muir, Henry David Thoreau, the national parks, the wilderness. They're going to think about these things and they're not necessarily going to think about the ocean. And some people do. And I think now, especially in the past few years, it's become something that people talk about. But I was certainly kind of frustrated when I first started school. And I I took this one class. It was called uh, Environmental Worldviews and Values. And uh, I was always the person that was like, oh, well, what about the ocean? Or well, what about this in the context of marine systems? Or what about, the, you know, it just wasn't the discourse just isn't there for ocean systems. Um, and so I really am into being part of the movement that's starting to shift that and starting. I want to bring the ocean to the mind of people in the same way that John Muir brought the national forests to the minds of the American people. So do you see that, um, you know, you mentioned in your class that the oceans weren't very well represented, well represented. But do you see that or do you get that feeling for the public in general in their um I guess, respect and knowledge of the ocean from the work that you've done? Um, I think it's certainly shifting at this moment. And just as a human in the world, I've seen it a lot more than I have before. Um, not necessarily in my research, but I have in the past, you see there's waves. There's waves of this knowledge. You know, it's a good pun, waves the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It comes in waves. And so there have been certain times where it's become very, very present. Um, In the 70s, there was a time when we were doing nuclear waste dumping in the oceans. There was a lot of activism against that. Um, In the 60s, Rachel Carson wrote some books about the ocean that definitely were like getting people to the seaside and um, getting them interested in things that were happening in the ocean. So it sort of comes and goes in waves is what I've seen uh, in my work. So it seems to be more linked to there's some crisis. And so people are aware of it until that's resolved or, you know, goes by the wayside or is, isn't as present and then people kind of forget until there's another big crisis, yeah. you know, like with um, chlor- uh, coral bleaching or, you know, something. Uh, yeah, and like I think that. crisis is definitely something, but another thing that is an interesting correlation is that technology has a lot to do with it. Like as soon as you get, you know, Jacques Cousteau putting videos of the ocean on TV, it just opens up everyone's minds to something they've never seen before, to like see the bottom of the ocean, to see under the water and take someone to a place 
I don't know. So there's like that piece of technology when you get that underwater housing or then then you get another jump where scuba, although it's very still a very privileged thing that people can do, it's still expensive. It's much more accessible now than it used to be. There are people who snorkel and dive and we used to live in a time where no one did that. So there's certainly technological infusions that once again bring us closer to this place that's just not where humans necessarily belong. When I went diving, I was down there. I was like, we're not supposed to be down here. <laughs> I feel like this is not the human environment. It was you feel it very strongly, just like this isn't this isn't made for my body. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. interesting. Or even technology being um bringing access to like live stream videos yeah. and and things like that. So, yeah. you know, even if you're still not um, a person that's comfortable or has the resources to go scuba diving, you can still have that experience yeah. um, from your home. And so I think we're definitely in an age where those sorts of things are um, of a benefit yeah. <laughs> to this yeah. situation. Yeah. It's just, yeah, when you look at video, like photos, I remember looking at a really old book that like maybe Jacques Cousteau made and the photos are just such poor quality and you can look at it and you're like oh that looks interesting but when you compare that photo to a photo now with the technology that we have it's just like a completely different image so it's pretty amazing. So you work with excuse me you work with a, a variety of people from different backgrounds and that is the interdisciplinary nature of your work it sounds like but I'm wondering how is that to communicate with so many different people who have their specialty in um, just a diversity of areas and how do you bring that together and synthesize it? Well, that's a good question. It is really challenging. I think I've learned a whole lot and I think the people that I've worked with have learned a whole lot. I think it takes time. the program that I just did, which was an interdisciplinary program through NSF to train you in doing interdisciplinary work, um, we had one year and everybody who does it is basically at the end saying, this is not enough time. Because we, my group specifically, we spent the majority of, I mean, months before we even got to the question that we were gonna ask together, just learning to speak each other's language, I mean, machine learning is is very much out of my wheelhouse. And so to work with someone who that's what's in their wheelhouse there, you have to take a lot of steps back and you have to keep going backwards and forwards in order to like get everybody on the same page. And I think what that takes is mutual respect, which can be difficult when you're working with people from different disciplines because there is a hierarchy. And so being able to respect where people come from and say the way that you do your work and the research that you do is meaningful and I respect it and to feel that way about each other. You have to get to know each other. In a way, we made a joke about forced friendship because we're like, we have to like each other in order to do this because you do kind of have to like each other in order to even be patient enough with someone when they're struggling to explain something or um, when, you know, when you fail on your end and and you let someone down and when you care about each other and you understand what everyone's going through, then you're able to work through those things and move forward. And I think that interpersonal sort of part of it is actually the most challenging part rather than 
what research question are we going to ask? Because once you have that foundation of we respect each other, we know how each other thinks, we know what expertise we bring to the table, we know how we work together, then then the next part is you just dive into it. And that, that takes time too, but then you're really ready for it. So yeah. it's that strikes me as challenging as well because different fields have such different ways of communicating and different expectations that it seems like you would ha- need to have a lot of um, open commu- communication at the outset. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of communication. We were definitely just like, are we in a communications class? Like practicing <laughs> interpersonal skills. Um, but it is, it is also sort of letting yourself go a little bit, like not just being open and communicating, but also open you have to sort of like let those expectations of your discipline almost fall away a little bit and go back to like who you are as a researcher and how you think about the world. Um, because if you hold so tight to like, this is how I do things and this is how we have to do it, then you can't move forward at all. So you're navigating this sort of vacillating process of constantly like letting some things go, but then also like remaining true to what you have to offer to the group. And that can be challenging for some people. Um, Yeah, yeah. definitely. So I was curious about this, the NSF program that you mentioned a little bit earlier that um, took place over the span of a year. And can you tell us a little bit about that, what that was and um, what in what your work entailed? Sure. Um, So it is a fellowship that NSF does, and they have a few of them that go out every year. I will say kudos to Oregon State. We have two NRT, which is a National Research Traineeship Program. There's two of them at OSU, and they're really competitive. And so it's surprising and amazing that OSU actually has two. Um, So the one that I'm in is risk and uncertainty, quantification, and communication in marine science. (laughs) It's very long. I think people just started saying risk and uncertainty in marine science now. Um, So they pair you with two people who are outside of your discipline, and you get sort of paired on a project together. So you apply as a project. So before I got into it, you know, there was a project they wanted a humanities person, so I applied to be on that project specifically. And it started as communication strategies for big data analytics. Um, and then, of course, we changed it because you that that's that process. You go through and what can we do together, and so we had changed it. So I was working with a computer scientist of another master's student who focuses in computer vision and machine learning, and also a graduate student in COs who does fisheries oceanography, studying um, flatfish habitats and their cycle, their life cycle. And so we got together, and we have a PI who is a PhD who sort of has a larger project that we can sort of like pin into. And so that's when we were working with Lorenzo Cianelli, who has been doing 10 years of video survey beam trawl data on the NH line. So did that all make sense? The Newport Hydrographic Line, it's a line that everybody does research on out of OSU. And then a beam trawl is a net that is dragged along the bottom of the water. Um, and scientists use this to study fish, and they had put a video camera on it. So what we were doing when we first started was to s- the computer scientist was like, how can we use computer vision to count the fish or look at the fish's motion, or what can what can be the application of computer vision in this project? And then um, Caitlin, the fisheries oceanographer I was working with, was looking at um, the the ha- actually 
putting the microhabitat of the flatfish together and looking at their composition and if we could sort of measure, use this data to measure fish. And then I started it, I'm an artist too. And so they took me on sort of wanting to do maybe some art and like communicating, they weren't sure, but also as a marine environmental historian to look at sort of how we've been surveying ground fish over time, what we've understood about them over time, um, how management frameworks have have changed over time because we wanted to be able to take that survey data that maybe the computer vision could see and look at how feasible it would be to get that into a management framework. So it's kind of a big, big question. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned that a year was not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> not long enough. No, no, no. It's not long enough. <laughs> but we ended up changing the title of it to Emerging, Emerging Technologies and Fisheries Science. Oh. So that's sort of what we ended up looking at. Okay. And you mentioned your art, and um, I went and visited oh, you your did. current um, showing at uh, the Autzen House, um, which is available until December 15th. Um, so any listeners out there, I, I encourage you to go check this out. But what you were just describing um, was... Um, I. I feel like there was part of part of this exhibit was represented it yeah. was represented in in what you were just describing with that project. So um, you should um, definitely go check that out. It's called "The Need to Know Comes in Waves," and so um, Sam has some neat artwork there on this project as well as other um, different pieces of other work she's done. So you're finishing up soon, and do you have? Um, any plans after that, it sounds like? You're potentially looking at PhD <clears throat> programs. Yes, I am looking at PhD pro programs. Um, and yeah, defending in the fall is an interesting thing because you're writing your thesis and applying for PhD programs at the same time. So that's an interesting process. Um, but yeah, I'm looking in to get my PhD because I feel like, um, you know, I was out of school for 10 years before I came back to get my master's. And so I feel like this degree has been a way for me to really step in and get my head around a lot of what's going on in this area. And now I feel even more ready to um, get in more specifically into this work um, and continue doing research. I love doing research. I love working on interdisciplinary teams. So I really hope to keep doing that. Um, but, you know, the humanities and PhDs are funding and you just got to hope that you get into a program with funding. And so we'll see what happens. Yeah. Best of luck. Thanks. <laughs> um, but taking a step back as well, um, can you tell us about your undergraduate experience and um, what eventually led you to OSU and a master's degree here? Sure. So my undergraduate, I actually studied consciousness, which I didn't realize till recently was also an interdisciplinary program. I was the only non-science person on the program. I have a bachelor's of science in psychology um, and I was studying consciousness and philosophy of the mind and also um, behavioral biological psychology. And then after I graduated, I didn't really do anything with that. I went into doing uh, nonprofit work for a long time. I did environmental ed. I did a lot of outreach and communication and marketing for environmental groups um, because Surprisingly, knowing how people think is really helpful in um, learning how to communicate and uh, get ideas out there with them. And so I was working in town at an environmental center, the Corvallis Environmental Center, where I worked for several years. Um, and my advisor, who knew me and knew the kind of 
work and ideas that I was interested in said that OSU was starting this brand new program called the Environmental Arts and Humanities program, and she thought that I would be a good fit. And so I applied, and here I am. (laughs) So I'm curious about that transition from working to grad school. Did uh, So you were working for a number of years before starting your master's degree. And so how was that transition from working to school? Was that was that a sort of really difficult or challenging? What sort of, um, what did you encounter with that? Um, I don't think it was challenging. I'm, I love being a student. I was always kind of, you know, a nerd. I like school. <laughs> um, so it was kind of exciting to go back. Um, but it's different. I don't, I like them both. They're certainly different. Um, and I'm glad that I worked before I came back. Um, because I have a lot of, you know, experiences and, perspectives on the world that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't done that. Um, but it's it's been a, a good transition, I think. Yeah. So you briefly mentioned earlier that you grew up in coastal Texas, and I just want um, you to share with us a little bit about your um, experience growing up there, because I really think it's it seems to be a thread that has um, carried with you throughout your uh, career. Yeah, so um, I don't know if everyone who's listening knows much about coastal Texas. One time I asked, somebody asked me where I was from, and I said, I'm from coastal Texas. And they said, Texas has a coast. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, it does. It's a really long coast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, another thing that happens in Texas is that it has a lot of petrochemical activity. And I grew up in Freeport, Texas, where... Um, there is an LNG import-export facility, there's Dow Chemical, BASF, Gulf Chemical, there's plastic factories, there's this, the, whole, the whole thing that goes with that. And, um, and it's right on the water, you know, it's right there on the beach. So like my beach, when people are like, oh, that's so cool, you're from the beach, they think that I'm from like sunny, I don't know, some white sand, blue water you know, vacation type beach. And that's not what my beach looks like at all. Although I spent almost every day growing up there, I spent so much time there and it is an ocean that I love. Um, but even in my time as a young person, even in in just like 10 years of being a young person that lived there, I, I saw so much change and, um, I just being in the ocean makes me happy. Being near the ocean makes me happy. It's, it's a relationship that is akin to any relationship you would have with a human being. And if something terrible was happening to your friend that you loved, you would be hurt and you would try and stop that. And that's kind of how I feel, although my work isn't exactly in that sort of advocacy realm or like trying to stop anything. But I certainly um, am interested in our in our relationships to the ocean um, because I think that I don't know. Um, I just think it's important to consider um, in a time where the ocean is maybe in a rough place. So considering like what kind of relationship we have with it, I think is a good starting point into sort of changing how we think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So looking forward beyond grad school, do you have an idea of what sort of work you would like to end up doing? I think, I I mean, I would love to stay in a university. I would like to teach and I would like to continue doing research similar to what I've been doing now where I'm studying these relationships and doing it interdisciplinarily just through my own methods, but also working on interdisciplinary teams. 
um, a, a sort of that relationship between marine environments, coastal communities, and science technology. I am really interested in studying industry, so I might end up studying more about the petrochemical industry um, and sort of how that all those things come together with environmental thinking and decision making. But um, if for some reason teaching doesn't work out, then I think probably working for an NGO, since I've done that type of work, I think I'm poised to do it better now. So, okay. yeah. So we have two traditions on our show. And um, the first one is for you to share with us a little bit of advice. And this can be for undergraduates or graduate students or whoever your audience um, may be. But if you could tell us um, what your bit of advice is and who it's for. Sure. So I think this is probably for maybe anyone. Um, it's really pragmatic to think about um, what you're doing right now and how that's going to affect the career you're going to get. But I go back and forth personally myself thinking, oh, well, I need to get this PhD because that'll give me a better chance of getting a job as a professor when I'm done. Or I don't, or not wanting to do that and say, actually, no, I want to get a really interdisciplinary PhD, which actually might put me at an in a disadvantage in getting a PhD when I'm done. But I think if you think too far in the future, you sort of lose sight of what you really are passionate and care about. Um, and so I think it's important to be a little bit pragmatic, but also to know that if you're doing something that you feel really strongly about, that's still going to benefit you in the end and that you'll be able to do that work later. Um, so I hope that I can decide, which I haven't yet, because it's a hard decision, but I hope that I can decide to sort of stick to what I really believe in, which is I think interdisciplinarity is really important and is the future of academia and that's what I should get my PhD in and not get a specific one, so I think that you have to just, you know, follow. That sounds so cliche. Follow your heart, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Not to follow your heart, but just like think pragmatically, but know that if you also think passionately and let that passion be guiding you, that it will benefit you in the end. Because it has for me in most of my other decisions. So I think that it, it will work for me now and for everyone. And the other tradition we have on the show is uh, for you to choose a song and I'm wondering what you chose and why you chose it. Sure. So in 2016, I went to Bermuda um, with uh, the, I was a resident artist for the OSU Department of Microbiology, and I was able to go to Bermuda and be an artist at sea on the RV Atlantic Explorer through the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Science in the lab of Steve Giovannoni. And when I was flying, it was a life-changing trip. And when I was flying back on the plane, this is the song that I heard. And the first line of it, I don't even know if I had even heard of the band before I heard it. And the first line of it said, there's something in the water. And I was like, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things in the water. <laughs> That's great. And I listened to it again before I picked it for this. And it still really, really resonated with me and my work and what I'm going through. I love that. All right, awesome. So this is I Don't Mind by Paper Bird. Thank you so much for being on our show, Sam. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yep. 